Good morning, church. Good morning. You know, when, Gen- uh, when uh, Caleb said that we were going to go through Genesis, I got kind of excited because I like Genesis. Uh, and then he said it's going to be titled The Gospel in Genesis. And I thought for a moment and I said, well, certainly the gospel is in Genesis, but in some places it's not real obvious, it's not real clear, but in other places it is. And we're looking at Genesis 3 today, and the gospel just about shouts out of Genesis 3. So we're going to look at today sin, judgment, gospel, and grace. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for Genesis, which opens our eyes, Father, to uh, who you are and what your plan is for the people you've created. Father, may we understand from Genesis 3 today more of that plan. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when you think of Satan, what do you think of? You think... (laughs) Uh, a lot of people will think of the caricature uh, of the dude in the red suit uh, with the goatee. By the way, if you're wearing a goatee this, this morning, you might want to think about changing them. Uh, you know, horns out of the head, tail with a point on it, holding a pitchfork, evil smile on his face. Uh, that's not Satan. But the Bible does give us some images of Satan that we do need to pay attention to. And that's where this chapter starts in Genesis 3. So let's, while I'm not excited about talking about Satan, it's here, so we should we should address it. You know, chapter 2, Genesis, details the creation of man and woman and the environment that God created for them. It was a great place. It was a great place to be. It was a great place not just to live in, but a place to be with God and to commune with him and to be with him and to talk with him without the walls of sin that uh, separate us so much of the time. So we have this great place in chapter 2 and then we get to chapter 3. Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty than any, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So we're introduced to a serpent. The Hebrew word for serpent is nahash. And it can mean be translated in several ways. It can be translated snake or serpent. It could be translated sea dragon. They find that in Amos 9.3. Uh, Leviathan. Isaiah 27.1. It also can be translated enemy. And we see that in Jeremiah 8.17. Where it says, the Lord said, the Lord says, yes indeed, I'm sending an enemy against you. Enemy there is Nosh. The word translated serpent in Genesis 3. I'm sending an enemy against you that will be like poisonous snakes that cannot be charmed away and they will inflict fatal wounds on you. So in Genesis here, we, the first thing we see about the serpent is that he's more crafty. Some versions use the word shrewd than any of the beasts or the animals that God created. Now, this line does not mean that this creature, this serpent, was one of the animals that God had created for Eden. It only means that he was unusually clever compared to any of the other animals that Adam and Eve had encountered to this point. Another point we see is that the serpent is personal. He carries on a conversation. He he converses with Eve. Now, Adam and Eve could not have known the identity of this serpent 
But the New Testament makes it clear. Revelation 20, verse 2. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So this creature is not a snake. It's Satan. And it doesn't seem likely, although I I grant the possibility, but it doesn't seem likely that Satan possessed some poor unsuspecting snake in the garden. And I'm pretty sure that Satan didn't toddle down to the local party city and bought himself a snake suit. I believe this description of Satan Satan as a serpent is meant as a comparison. Describes the character of the devil and to characterize him in a way that the Jews thought of snakes at the time and as we often think about snakes. And then we learn a little bit more about this serpent in Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you shall eat all the days of your life. And again, this is a comparison. The judgment against Satan is unlike what the animals will suffer as a result of the judgment that comes. The judgment on the serpent reminds of another place where there's a judgment on Satan. It's found in Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28 is prophecy against the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre was, is described as one who thought himself as a god. He's wise, and he's rich, and he's evil. And he would eventually be killed by his enemies. That was the judgment of God on the king of Tyre. And we find that in verses 1 to 12 of Ezekiel 28. And then in verses 11 through 19, a lament is spoken over the king of Tyre, using in part language that you wouldn't expect to be used of a human king. We're not going to read that whole passage, but I do want to pull some some of the language out from it. Part of it says, God, and this is God speaking, says you were the signet, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the signet of perfection. That just means that he's the highest example of perfection. Full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. I placed you there as an anointed guardian cherub, you were on the holy mountain of God. So the holy mountain of God and the garden of God, Eden, are, are spoken of as the same place. You were blameless in your behavior from the day you were created until sin was discovered in you. So I defiled you and I banished you from the mountain of God. I cast you to the ground. This language is a description of Satan as he was cast not from heaven, but from Eden. Satan is cast from heaven, as recorded in another place in in Revelation 12. But here he's cast from Eden. The judgment of Genesis 3, in this judgment, Satan was cursed to crawl on his belly and to eat dirt. This is a Hebrew idiom, idiom meaning to be thrown down to the earth. The judgment on Satan, in part, was that he was removed from his high position. And if we are to take Ezekiel 28 seriously, his high position was as a guardian cherub of Eden. Satan had a plan. His plan was to destroy the humans that God created, but God had a different plan. So let's talk about sin, everybody's favorite subject. Yay! Yay. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, 
You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So in verse 1 here, the serpent challenges Eve about what God said. And let's make note here that Adam was with Eve right there the whole time. If he's like most guys, he's probably sitting on the couch watching football. But to remind, in Genesis 2.16... This is what God said. God said that they could eat from any tree in the garden. He said they were not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then thirdly, if they did eat from that tree, they would surely die. And that's the phrase, they will surely die. The Hebrew there is emphatic. In fact, the Hebrew there says, you will die, die. Emphasizing the fact that they would die. Now, what the serpent said created doubt in Eve created doubt about what God said and about who he is. The serpent said, God did not really say that you couldn't eat from any tree, did he? Well, of course not. God did not say that. And the woman, Eve, replies that way. But this introduced doubt. Then Eve added something that God did not say. Eve added that God said not to touch it. And in saying that, making God seem perhaps a little more demanding. Small thing perhaps, but you can see, I think, how Eve built on the doubt that Satan introduced about what God had said. And then Eve added to what God said. I'm sorry, Eve added to what God said and then removed something that God did say. Eve said that if they touched or ate from the tree, they would die. Now, listen carefully. She said if they touched if they touched or ate from the tree, they would die. Eve is not using the emphatic. She just said, you will die. Remember that God said, you will die, die. I think she subtly suggested to herself that God didn't really mean what he said. And then the serpent used the emphatic, saying, you will not die, die. Creating even more doubt. The serpent backed that up by outright lying and assigning God a motive that did not exist. The serpent said, in effect, that God does not want you to have what he has. He's keeping good things from you. And we hear that a lot in our modern world. God doesn't want me to have fun. Now, Mormonism, not to pick on Mormonism, but Mormonism teaches that you can be a God. It is in Eden where that lie first began. That lie has been told in many ways over thousands of years, but it is still a lie. And the basis of the lie is the idea that a person can elevate themselves to be more important than God, even if they don't say it that way. Satan's clever lies always try to introduce doubt. And with the lies, humans will build on the doubt, like Eve did. Doubt about God's truthfulness, about his word, and about his goodness. Having eaten the fruit, Adam and Eve now knew good and evil. They didn't become like God. 
but they did know good and evil. They knew personal moral evil, and thus they knew shame. And their shame was over their disobedience. Certainly they had shame about their nakedness, but I think that was just a byproduct of the shame over their sin. One thing sin does is that it causes loss. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But sin gets found out. Genesis 3, 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is, what is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So God was walking about in the garden. This passage suggests that this was a regular occurrence. I think God probably came around in the afternoon, in the cool of the day, to sit and talk with Adam and Eve, to walk with them. What would that have been like? But this day was different. So God comes along, he knows Adam's, Adam's sin, and he asks Adam three questions. He says, where are you? Now, God knew where Adam was. God wasn't looking in the trees and going, where is that guy? He knew where he was. God also asked, who told you you were naked? Well, nobody told Adam he was naked, and God knew that. And then he asked, did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? All three questions were designed to get Adam to confess his sin. And he didn't. Instead, Adam deflects. Deflects is simply shifting blame. Uh, it's not my fault, but if I did it, someone else made me do it. Adam blamed Eve, but he really blamed God. God, it's the woman you gave Oh, sorry, Nancy. It's the woman you gave me. I think I might be sleeping on the couch tonight. <laughs> the one question God asked Eve had the same purpose, to get her to confess. And he got the same response from Eve, deflection and blame. This time, she blamed the serpent. When it comes to sin, deflection is what we do best when we try to cover our sin. But one of the graces of God is that he does not walk away when we sin. Even if we deflect and even if we blame. Rather, he pursues his adopted sons and daughters. He pursues them when they sin. And in his loving pursuit, God sometimes allows pain. Sometimes he brings pain. So that we'll be driven to confess. And driven to repair our relationship. To allow God to repair our relationship with him. David knew this. David committed adultery and murder. And he wrote about it. Psalm 32, 3-5. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. And, and just to be clear here, we're talking about a lot about here, Satan causing people to sin. We don't need Satan 
to cause us to sin. James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. And after sin comes judgment. Genesis 3, 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the servant, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust shall be, you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your, of your face you shall not eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for your dust. <clears throat> and to dust you shall return. I want to point out two themes that are apparent in this passage. One has to do with, uh, or they both regard sin and judgment. One theme is that sin, as we've already mentioned, results in loss. There's a lot of loss here. The other theme is that sin impacts, severely impacts, relationships. Sometimes this passage is collectively called the curse, but there are actually two curses in this passage. Neither of the curses are on Adam and Eve. Curses certainly affect Adam and Eve, but they are not cursed. They are, however, judged. So, judgment on the serpent. The first judgment on the serpent we've already talked about is this curse on Satan where God cast him down from his high position and cast him out of Eden. And Satan lost his relationship with God. The second part of the judgment on Satan is that there is now a state of enmity between the man in the or between Satan and the woman. Enmity means hostility, conflict. More specifically, this conflict is between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. The word offspring, uh, translated offspring in both cases, is what is called a collective singular noun. Now, if Nancy were up here, she could explain it to you because she knows English really, really good, unlike me. But I think I can illustrate what a collective singular noun is. I had a colleague at work. His name was Kenny. And uh, if you were to meet Kenny and begin to talk to him, you would know probably within 30 seconds he was from Texas. He looked like a Texan. He often dressed like a Texan. And he for sure sounded like a Texan. And if you were speaking to Kenny and if he was referring to you, he would often say something like, referring to you, y'all. Like, y'all going to dinner tonight. Now, you know, y'all in that case would be a singular noun. Now, I often thought of y'all as meaning a whole bunch of people, but apparently not. I'm not an expert in English, nor I'm an expert in Texan. But I did ask Kenny one day, because I was thinking about this, and I asked Kenny, I said, Kenny, if, if y'all means one person, how do you speak about a group of people? He looked at me, he rolled his eyes, he said, you just say, all y'all. <laughs> All y'all is a collective singular noun, referring to a group of people as if they were one. It's 
typically thought that the hostility between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman can be understood to mean that there would be hostility between those who follow Satan and those who follow God. And I think that's true enough. However, theologians, people who look at this, these things really carefully, have, have recently demonstrated that the following pronoun in that verse, the pronoun he, when it refers to he will bruise your head, that pronoun is singular. And that because of that, the woman's offspring refers to a particular offspring, a particular descendant who will strike the serpent's head. That person will bruise, or is in, the he, in the Hebrew, will crush Satan's head with the unmistakable meaning to kill or destroy. On the other hand, Satan will bruise or strike that person's heel, that one individual. Again, with the unmistakable meaning to kill. To kill that one person from the woman's offspring. Thinking about this from Eve's perspective, God is promising that one day, one person from her offspring will destroy Satan, and by extension, will restore what was lost in the sin in the sin of Adam and Eve. But in doing so, that one person, that one singular person, will die. We'll come back to that. And there's then there's the judgment on the woman. As with Satan, the woman will experience God's judgment in two ways. First, she will experience pain. Pain in childbirth, that depending on the translation, is multiplied, greatly increased, intensified, to be very severe or sharpened. In other words, it's going to hurt a lot. Uh, I know there are ladies who, probably even in this room, who had it harder, but my wife, when she had Jason, had to go through 12 hours of intense labor. And then Jason got stuck. And so we had to have an emergency cesarean. Nancy would tell you that those 12 hours was a lot of pain. The Hebrew, however, in this suggests that the pain, while physical, is also emotional and mental. The point is, is that Eve and all women after her lost what should have been a primarily wonderful experience, an experience now that's overtaken by pain. Second, there is damage to the relationship between the man and the woman. And that extends to all men and women, not just in marriage. The woman's desire, but speaking of marriage, the woman's desire will be contrary to her husband. Some versions say that the woman's desire will be for her husband, or some will say to control her husband. We can get a clue of what it actually means from Genesis 4-7, where God is counseling Cain about his attitude that his offer, offering wasn't accepted. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire is contrary to you. Same word, desire. Contrary. And then God goes on to say, but you must rule over it. The same Hebrew word translated in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 4-7 means to control. And it's not meant to be a benevolent control. In addition, the same Hebrew word translated rule, where it says in your husband will rule over you is used in both those passages and has the same meaning in both. While the desire of the woman will be to control her husband, the husband will rule over her. Some versions translate that word dominate. Adam and Eve, all men and women, particularly in marriage, lost the harmonious relationship God had intended. Now it is a relationship of conflict. 
relationships can, that can devolve into fighting, animosity, anger, rejection, hatred, pain, adultery, divorce, and so on. But praise God, we have his direction on how to have relationships between men and women that help us to restore what God intended. Those scriptures teach humility and preference for one another and forgiveness for one another and selfless care for one another. But sadly, left to us on our own, the defining aspect of male-female relationships will be one of conflict. And then there's the judgment on Adam. Now, Eve is not held responsible, at least not explicitly, for eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God does does hold Adam responsible. And holds him responsible for not taking leadership. I think God expected Adam to take Eve's arm and say, wait a minute, what are we doing here? But he didn't. As before, the judgment on Adam comes in two ways. The first part of the judgment is that because of Adam, the ground is cursed. And and catch this, Adam's not cursed, the ground is cursed. It's cursed because of Adam, but Adam is not cursed. What is lost to Adam is the promise of God that he could freely eat from every seed-bearing plant and every seed-bearing tree that produced fruit on the face of the entire earth. That's what Genesis 1.29 says. In addition, Adam could eat from every tree in the garden, the garden that God had planted, except for that one tree. The point is, Adam would not not have to toil. He would not have to work just to eat. Caleb last week talked to the value of work. That work is God-ordained and that it's good and that it's a grace of God, even in this sinful world, and that is very true. But it's because of sin, work now can be doused with sweat and pain and thorns and thistles. Adam and all people, in one way or another, will have to do battle with the ground just to eat. Adam lost the freedom to eat in the way God intended. Now he has an adversarial relationship with the ground. We may not have to till the ground, although I know there are some here that do. We don't have to till the ground to live, but we must work. And we must work whether we actually have an employment or not. And the work will be in sweat and pain. And often at significant expense. This is not what God intended. And the ground is still cursed. Romans eight twenty through 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The second judgment on Adam is that he would die and that he would return to the dust from which he was made. In his sin, Adam had already died spiritually. He was separated from God. That's expressed in the uh, expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden. No more walking in the cool of the day with God. But now, as God promised originally, if he were to disobey, he would die physically. His His death didn't happen immediately. But he did die after spending some 900 years on the earth in sweat and pain. Well, that's all depressing. Let's talk about gospel. 
Genesis 3, 20 through 24. The man called his wife's name Eve, and because, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of, skin, of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We may read this passage and it might not be readily apparent, but there's gospel mercy here. You see it first in Adam's naming of Eve. Now, the scripture isn't specific about exactly when Adam named Eve, but where it comes in the narrative suggests that it must have been after the fall, after they sinned, probably after they were expelled from the garden. The meaning of the word Eve is mother of all the living, or the mother of all who live. It's related to the Hebrew word for life. And many see in this a recognition by Adam that Eve her, and her offspring would produce that singular offspring mentioned in verse 15 that would repair the loss that was caused by the sin of Adam and Eve, and bring restoration. Certainly Adam doesn't understand this like we do. But he recognized God had a plan through the offspring of Eve. And he believed it was evidenced by his, and he believed it, and that is evidenced by his naming of his wife. The next gospel mercy is in the providing of skins for Adam and Eve. There are two levels to this. First, God provided a mercy in giving Adam and Eve clothes to replace what must have been very unsuitable. And the skins God made would provide better comfort, better covering. But the more significant point is that God had to have killed at least two animals to provide the skins. The first death. Two animals that Adam had named. Two animals that it's quite possible that Adam and Eve had made animal friends with. Death had to occur just so they would be covered. It was a blood sacrifice for Adam and Eve. And of course, this points to the ultimate blood sacrifice of Christ. That offspring of Eve would make for all who would trust God for the forgiveness of their sins. And then there's gospel mercy in the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden. That may seem odd. The passage states, though, that God did not want them living forever if they had stayed there and eaten from the tree of life. If they had eaten from the tree of life, they would have eaten the tree of life as sinners. That was now their nature. God didn't want sinners to live forever. Now, please understand, God wasn't afraid that Adam and Eve, of Adam and Eve living forever. It's not like God said, oh no, they live forever, I can't do anything. No, he didn't want sinful creatures living forever. And if they had eaten from the tree, God would have to had destroyed them. There would have been no other way. But that's the point. God did not want to destroy them. God wanted to preserve them. So that God could have the human family that he planned for and that he desired. And finally, there's the gospel of mercy and the judgment by God on the serpent. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise you on your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And of course, we know. And it's hard not to see 
that this, the offspring that's being referred to is Jesus Christ. He would be killed by Satan. Killed on the cross. But he would rise again to crush Satan's head. To destroy him. Christ is the one who would bring redemption and repair the devastating effects of sin. Adam and Eve, of course, couldn't have understood this. But they did understand that God would provide through their offspring the one who would repair the loss because of the sin that they committed. This verse has become to be called, I think it's Latin, the Proto-Evangelium. Simply means the first expression of the gospel in the scriptures. Many Bible students believe that when Genesis says that God was walking around in the garden, that it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. If that's the case, when Christ pronounced the judgment, he pronounced his own sacrifice. He pronounced his own death. But he did it for Adam and Eve and for you and me. So I'd like us, as we finish up here, to consider two things. I want you to consider sadness and grace. You know, there's a poignancy in Scripture that I think we sometimes miss. There's a sadness in Scripture from time to time that we just don't catch. For example, when Jesus said the 5,000, hundreds, probably thousands of people were following him. It must have been a heady time. And Jesus knew they're following him not for the way to know to how to get into the kingdom of God. They weren't following him to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. They were following Jesus for the bread. He knew that. So Jesus said some hard things. And when he said those hard things, all those folks who were following him, just about all of them left. They turned their backs. Jesus is God, of course, he knew this, and he knew what would happen, but he was also human, and I wonder how that felt to him. But after they left, left, Jesus turned to his disciples and asked, are you going to leave me too? Can you catch the sadness in that? There is great sadness in Genesis 3. There is great loss. There is warping of relationships that has impacted all humanity. And I think and I wonder what it must have been like for Adam and Eve after the expulsion from the garden to live within sight of it, but never being able to go back. It is a terribly, terribly sad thing to realize that what was lost, to realize what was lost. It is a terribly, terribly sad thing to realize what we have lost, what we have never had because of sin. Can you grasp the sadness in that? When we sin, we suffer loss. And we damage relationships with others. And we damage our relationship with God. But praise God, he can repair that relationship because of his willingness to forgive us in Jesus Christ. And therein is grace. Repairing relationships between one another when we sin can take longer. But even there, God gives grace. Even there, God can repair those relationships. But one of the things we should consider here is that when we sin, our sin should lead to sadness. Paul calls it godly grief or godly sorrow. 
And it's that godly sorrow that drives us to mourn our sin, as Jesus said we should do in Matthew 5. And it causes us to repent. And there is grace. You know, all the loss that was suffered by Adam and Eve is, is one thing that Satan wanted, but that wasn't his goal. You see, the plan of Satan was to see humans destroyed. He wanted to see humans eliminated. To keep God from having the human family he wanted. Satan tried to have God destroy the humans three times in Genesis. Once in Eden, the second time with the flood, the third time at the Tower of Babel. But in each case, the grace of God preserved humans. God didn't destroy Adam and Eve. He preserved them by expelling them from the garden. God did not destroy all humans in the flood. He preserved a people, people who were also sinners. But he preserved them. And out of Babel, God preserved a people for himself, beginning with a fellow named Abram. The offspring of Abraham eventually led to Christ, and that led to the people of God, his human family, those who base their faith in God on Jesus Christ. In each case, the grace of God prevailed, albeit at great cost to humans and certainly to God. Because you see, God has a plan too. God's plan is to preserve a people for himself and to do what he originally planned to do in Eden. The human gods, the humans God preserve are to be his family, though at the cost of the death of his son. Someone once said that God doesn't have a plan B. That's true. God's only plan is to have a human family. I'd like you to leave today considering the great sadness of sin, but also to consider the great grace of God, remembering the cost and rejoicing because God is preserving you to be a part of his adopted family when you believed in Christ. And if you haven't believed in Christ, would you talk to me, please, today? Talk to Caleb. Talk to someone. <laughs> you can have the joy of being a part of God's family, and you can have the joy of having your sin forgiven. What's what God has provided. The offspring of the woman, the one who suffered, the, that one who suffered, Jesus Christ, preserves you for God's family, and there will be a day that God's original plan will be realized. Revelation 21, 3-5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, or look, the dwelling place of God is with man. Some versions say the residence of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Kind of like the garden. When, Adam, when God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Sounds like restoration. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down. Because these words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray. Father, we see, and when we think about it, we understand the great sadness of sin.
We understand, Lord, that we have lost so much. And for those who believe, when we look back on our lives before we accepted Jesus Christ, we realize how bad it was. But Jesus Christ, that offspring of Eve, has offered to us now, because of his sacrifice on the cross, he's offered to us now a way to be restored, a way to have forgiveness forgiven, or sin forgiven, a way to become part of God's family, and a way, Father, to that one day to see you and to see Jesus and to be with you and to be with Jesus without sin. Just like it was supposed to be in Eden. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we have that to look forward to. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.